guest today is Naomi Fisher, a clinical psychologist, author, and a mother of two self-directed learners. Naomi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Blake. It's really good to be here. You and I connected when you reached out to interview me for an article you were writing, which ended up being titled Why Unschool for mm-hmm. a publication called The Green Parent. And, That's right, yeah. And in that publication, you also mentioned a book called The Nurture Assumption. And mm-hmm. you and I connected over this because um, I got interested in this whole debate about nature and nurture when I read The Nurture Assumption in late 2017, when I was diving into the parenting literature. And, and that kicked off a great discussion in which you played a huge and, and very influential role in, in developing chapter four of my book, uh, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? Because you you have this incredible depth of knowledge about these issues. And so I just want to like formally thank you for playing that role. And, uh, and I want to learn a little bit more about you right now so that our, our listeners okay. know who I'm talking with. So can you tell me about your professional background, family background, the book that's coming out? Yeah, I'll do that. And then, you know, I'd like actually to correct you straight away. I actually think it was the book by Robert Plowman that you originally saw me talking about that because he talks about genes and environment. And I think that mm. led on to the discussion about the nurture okay. assumption because I actually wrote an earlier article called Just What Makes Us Who We Are for the Psychologist, which was about genes and environment and nurture and nature. And it actually wasn't it wasn't related to self-directed education, that article. But of course mm. it all it all relates. It, it, it all kind connects. of does, right? Yeah. Thank you for that exactly. correction. And we will talk more about Robert Plowman coming down the line. Yeah. So I am a clinical psychologist. I have been a clinical psychologist for about 15 years now. Um, and I have two children who are aged nine and 12. And I've really, for me, things have come, came together because in my work as a clinical psychologist, I saw lots of children and adults as well, actually, who had been very traumatized by their time at school, um, particularly children who attracted diagnoses of ADHD and ASD who would tell me about really difficult things that had gone on for them at school. And one of the things I struggled with as a psychologist is that people bring children to you and adults come to you saying, help me change, help help fix me sometimes is really what they're saying. And what I was thinking as they were telling me their stories more and more was, but there's something wrong with the system they're in. The, The schools are requiring things of them, which just don't help them they don't and in a way how can I help somebody to exist in a system that isn't right for them so I was already thinking that as a psychologist and then I had my own children and it was pretty clear from quite early on that they were my son was not going to be someone who would necessarily thrive in mainstream mainstream school so I started looking into other opportunities for him and we were unschoolers for first the first six years And then it became clear that my kids had quite different needs. I've got a nine-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy. They are very different. And I felt I was really struggling to meet their needs as an unschooling family. But I still was very committed to self-directed education. And so we actually moved to France for two years so that they could go to a self-directed Sudbury model school there, which was fantastic. They had a great time. Unfortunately, then there was a global pandemic. And so we had to come back to the UK and that's where we are now. So we have been unschooling since February this year again. And next week, they're going to start at a place called the Self-Managed Learning College, which is near Brighton in the south coast of the UK. So I'm quite committed to self-directed education 
on two levels, really, professionally and personally. But I'm also really committed to thinking about how the structures around children, in particular children, affect their psychological well-being and how we have a tendency as a society to locate problems in the children when actually I think we need to be widening our perspective and thinking about what is what's around this child. Why are they experiencing the distress they're experiencing? Mm. And I've written a book which is coming out in February 2021, published by Little Brown, and it's called Changing Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning. And it is really about the psychology of self-directed education because I'm passionate about bringing together research with practice. So looking at what does the psychological research really tell us about what people need and how does how can education work with that rather than working against that? I'm very excited for your book, uh, <laughs> The Psychology of Self-Directed Education. That That's something that very few people have published on. Uh, just Gina Riley, as far yes. as, as I'm aware. And, yes, she's and so, recently brought, and I interviewed her actually for my book uh, as well. Good. Um, yeah. Good. Um, wonderful. And the, the subject of what we're going to talk about today is broadly nurture, nature, genes, and environment. Mm-hmm. And I want to give a little context, a little introduction um, regarding how I became interested in this. Um, because some of my earlier work, I, I'd say a lot of my, my earlier work was really kind of agnostic or, or ignoring the, the facts about parenting. I just sort of assumed that kids grow up in a, in a vacuum and you can choose to unschool or you can choose to send your kids to a highly alternative school, kind of independent of, of parenting styles. And, mm-hmm. and as I learned more, I realized that, that there's so much overlap there. And, and I started doing research into, into parenting and how parenting has evolved. And, and this is what turned into chapter four of, of the new book. And specifically, I realized that there's this thing called intensive parenting. And so I, I just want to provide a little bit of, of background uh, for this first before we get into the, uh, the, the nurture nature stuff, because I feel like it, it's important for framing the problem. Um, so there's this quote that I absolutely adore from the author Bunmi Latadan, uh, who wrote, how to be a mom in 2017. That's when she published this on Facebook. She said, make sure your children's academic, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, nutritional, and social needs are being met while being careful not to overstimulate, understimulate, improperly medicate, helicopter, or neglect them in a screen-free, processed foods-free, GMO-free, negative energy-free, plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian, but also authoritative, nurturing, but fostering of independence, gentle, but not overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story, multilingual home, preferably in a cul-de-sac with a (laughs) a backyard and 1.5 siblings spaced at least two years apart for proper development. Also, don't forget the coconut oil. And then she says, how to be a mom in literally every generation before ours. Feed them sometimes. (laughs) Just brilliant. And as someone who's not a parent, um, you know, I had to read about this. I had to talk with lots of parents to kind of understand the shift that has happened in parenting. And some of the most useful books for me were The Gardener and the Carpenter by Alison mm-hmm. Gopnik. And she said, you know, parenting was, the word parent was just a noun for a long time. And mm-hmm. recently in the middle of the 20th century, it became a verb. You, you don't just parent, you, you parent a child, like a transitive verb that takes an object. And so she said, it's turned into this goal-oriented, object-oriented action 
And um, then there are these other people who have studied uh, modern parenting, like uh, the sociologist Sharon Hayes, who said that our, our modern intensive parenting approach is anything which is child-centered, expert-guided, mm. emotionally absorbing, labor-intensive, and financially expensive. <laughs> this has become the default. And another mm. sociologist, Annette Larau, says it's more like a form of concerted cultivation in which parents spend much more time talking to children, answering their questions with questions, and treating each child's thought as a, a unique special contribution. Um, and then going in, into like the more long-term history of this, I realized that there's been this huge shift, um, if we look back hundreds of years, from children being considered essentially, you know, free labor for the family farm, uh, you know, to help put food on the table, or even unwanted, like, nuisances in some, some societies, uh, into this modern version of, of what David Lancey, the anthropologist, calls cherubs, you know, essentially precious, adorable, you know, emotionally uh, invaluable, um, you know, members of our role, of our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then the more recent development, uh, you know, from the 1980s onward has to do with high profile child abductions and child assault cases that were broadcast nationally for the first time ever. Um, the stagnation of middle class wages, which makes parents have more economic anxiety to drive their kids towards traditional success. Um, brain plasticity research, you know, making everyone concerned that they have to provide a highly stimulating environment for their kid. Otherwise, the kid won't grow up correctly. Um, but really, I, I feel like the most helpful explanation that I found in my reading was, again, from Alison Gopnik, who said there's just been this basic demographic shift. You know, it used to be that families were large. You know, I think women had seven children on average in the 1850s. Um, and now there's two children on average. Um, and in Western countries. And then uh, families also tended to be young, parents tended to be young. And what this meant was when people throughout history were growing up, they took care of their siblings by default and out of necessity. Mm -hmm. And then in the modern era, and really just in the past 50 years, perhaps we have you know, professional childcare, we have full-time schooling and, and after-school care, which means, and we have much smaller families, which means that the average young person doesn't get the chance to care for siblings. They have no, they have very little experience with kids, but instead they have a lot of experience. The modern parent has a ton of experience in school and in jobs. And so Alison Kopnick says it's, it's totally reasonable for modern parents to treat children like a school project or an important job, which is to say a goal oriented project. You're gonna kind of like a carpenter works to create the perfect chair or the CEO, you know, focuses on the bottom line. Alison Gopnik says, this is what parents have been doing because it's, it's what we know best. Uh, so all of this leads to this, this idea that you have total control over your kid's destiny, uh, what the sociologist Frank Ferretti calls parental determinism. And that in turn leads to a form of over-identification with one's child, feeling guilt about your kid's ostensible failures, having the sense of pride over your kid's successes. Uh, it's just, I, when I was reading all this, I was like, this is madness, really. When, when you read about it in these terms, intensive parenting, which is just normal parenting nowadays in, in developed countries, is it's kind of crazy. Uh, do you have I gotten? Thanks for listening. And do you think I've I've gotten this correct, Naomi? 
Well, I think you've brought in loads of different ideas there. And I think that you, it's really interesting. And I also think that Alison Gopnik's book is fabulous. And she really nails it in terms of talking about how parenting has become a verb and how it's something we do to other people. Um, and I think there's something very, there's something really interesting about all the different things that come together because there's this sort of focus on being child centered and the child's needs and the child's psychological well being. But at the same time, there's the child as object, there's the child who's is an outcome effectively for the adult. So what happens to the child is reflects on the parents, how well they've done the parenting, really, and Gottnick nails it. You know, it's school, it's school thinking. I need to, my, if I do everything right, my child will come out at the end and they'll go to Oxford or they'll go to Harvard and they will have a successful career and they'll be psychologically well-adjusted and they'll have a whole range of exciting sporting hobbies and all this, and they will be this perfect person. So there's a control that goes through this, which I think is really important to name, that this is about parents wanting to feel in control of outcome. And it's about, um, and I think some children are quite perceptive and they notice that. They realise that this feels controlling. But it's such an in, it's such a um, system that is so, it's around us everywhere. And it's actually, as a parent, it's very hard to back off. I remember myself, the anxiety I started to feel when my children were three or four and everybody was signing them up for quite formal things. You know, you sort of started to feel, oh gosh, maybe they should be doing tennis lessons already. Or maybe I should be do- I should be making sure they really learn to read quickly. I remember even when my son was two, one of my one of the people I'd met through the baby groups said to me at the end of the at the end of the summer when we met up again, she said, Oh, I've been really concerned about my daughter's fine motor skills. So we spent the summer really working on fine motor skills. And I was like, my goodness, I've spent the summer trying to feed my children and trying to get through each day. What about I don't even thought about their fine <laughs> motor skills. And there's this sort of feeling of you've got to be doing more all the time. You've got to be ticking that box. You've got to be making sure your children do this. And the funny thing is I think about parenting culture and Frank Ferretti works I don't know if he still does, but he's the he's from Kent University in the UK, and they have a centre there for parenting culture studies. And I think seeing it as a culture is quite a useful way of thinking about it because once it's a culture, it isn't just how things are. Um, and a lot of the stuff comes out from that parenting culture studies centre. And where am I going with this? Um, when there's a culture. The, the culture has many, many different forms. And I think that's what's interesting about it because actually Sharon Hayes talks, when she talks about intensive mothering and intensive parenting, she's talking a lot about attachment parenting. And sometimes when people talk about intensive parenting, they talk about this form of very intense attachment parenting, which I did myself, where um, the children are with their parents for a, a quite a long period. They're maybe You maybe breastfeed for a lot longer than you might have done in your society at that time. You co-sleep. You don't push the children away. You wait for them to be ready to leave you rather than you saying, right, gosh, you know, it's time for you to leave me now. And the, there's that. But then there's also the more sort of explicitly controlling side of parenting, which is more along the lines of, you know, you need to be learning to read now you're two. You need to be doing this. You need to be practicing your fine motor skills because you're two. You know, well, now you're four, you should be sitting down and doing this. There's a whole different side of it as well. And they all come under this umbrella of intensive parenting. Mm. So there's a whole group of different people. And once you start to see it as a cultural thing, it's it's wider, I think, than lots of different parenting styles, for example. Mm-hmm. Good. I want to come back to attachment parenting near the mm-hmm. end of our discussion and, and at this moment, get into what what seems to me to be 
the best set of arguments to and not attack, that's not the word I'm looking for, but to reconsider these assumptions mm-hmm. of, of modern uh, intensive parenting culture. And, and for me, that this came from the book, The Nurture Assumption. Um, and, and just for the record, you're a general fan of this book too, right? I think it has some interesting ideas in it. I think it also has some serious flaws good. in terms of how she's interpreted the research, but I think it's got some interesting ideas. <laughs> That's yeah. Good. This is why we're here, because we don't want to just have two true believers no. talking about <laughs> something. And so I'm looking forward to hearing what you consider to be the, the flaws or, or the missing okay. parts of, of her work. Um, yeah, this book was written by Judith Rich Harris, who uh, was trying to get a PhD in at Harvard and, and kind of got kicked out and uh, ended up writing introductory college psychology textbooks. And uh, in doing the research for these textbooks, kind of put the research together in a fairly novel way uh, regarding n- nature and nurture. She published this article in Psychological Review, which is a prestigious journal, and had instant acclaim for this article that she wrote and won some awards. and then that got expanded into the book, The Nurture Assumption in 1998, I believe it was um, published again in 2008. Um, So Naomi, uh, would you do me the service of of perhaps summarizing the main, uh, Judith Rich Harris's main arguments uh, just for our listeners in a nutshell? I think you're gonna do a better job than I will. Oh, I don't know about that. I haven't read this. Haven't read it again for a while. But yeah. basically, she's arguing that we all overassume how much of an impact nurture has on children's development. That we have a tendency to think that how children turn out is due to parenting, and actually, the research indicates that parents do not have as much control as they think they do. That. The children themselves, their temperament is important, but also that her argument in particular is that the peers of a child are what actually determines how things go Mm -hmm. for them in the long term. So she would say you could basically switch children around from different families. They would still come out as the same people at the end. So when parents are getting very concerned about the micro parenting, I think she would say, you're, you're deluding yourself. You're, this level of stuff doesn't make a difference to who these children are because the children are more, they come as they are in a, in a, set, in a sense. Um, and I think she's basing that on research about shared environment and non-shared environment. And did you want to talk about that at all? Blake, yeah, yeah, what that means. I, I do. And I want to also touch on twin and adoption studies, yep. um, but uh, go ahead, start wherever feels natural. So one of the big findings of the last... 20 probably more than 20 years has been that in a whole set of genetically informed studies they have found that shared environment does not seem to make people similar within the same family so they divide environment into two factors there's shared environment and that's the environment that is the same for people within the same family so that would be parenting, really, what, ch- what children experience within the same family. And then there's non-shared environment, and that's environment that makes people different from each other. So that might be being at different schools, or it might be having different friends. That's what um, Judith Rich Harris suggests it is. It's peers, different peers make children different from each other. But the finding has been pretty consistently that when they look at the influences on people as they grow up, that genes are really important. Non-shared environment is really important. 
but shared environment isn't very important. So when they do adoption studies, for example, they find that these children who are adopted together, brought up in the same family, do not become similar. So they don't, the parenting doesn't seem to make those children similar. And Judith Rich Harris's answer to this is, is because it's the non-shared environment that counts. It's not the shared environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And and furthermore, the the twin studies, uh, which perhaps the easiest, you know, way that people have understood twin studies in recent years is by watching the documentary, Three Identical Strangers, Mm -hmm. which was on Netflix for a while. Um, You know, you have these identical twins who are raised separately uh, in the case of three identical strangers raised by three pretty different families, like different social classes, different parenting styles, and they turn out eerily similar. Um, It was, I think, around age 20 that these these triplets were reunited. Uh, But there are, you know, there's huge documentation of of similarity of genetically identical twins raised in separate environments, which along with the adoption studies you just mentioned, it's like this one, two punch uh, for the idea that the shared environment, that the family environment, you know, active parenting really makes a a difference. But it all depends by what you mean by make a difference. Yes. And and I want to talk about that right now, because uh, this is actually something that I've gotten tripped up on myself um, because in the, the nurture assumption, Judith Rich Harris, but this also, you know, comes with other people who write about this, like Plowman, um, they say how kids turn out in the long run. Um, I, I was always looking for a very specific list of what she actually meant by turn out. And that, that never was in the book. And the best that I've been able to figure out, please tell me if I'm wrong, is that um, she and other psychologists are talking about major psychology uh, personality traits. So for example, big five, like extroversion or conscientiousness, and then also large scale life outcomes, like whether someone's going to be married or divorced, whether they'll be depressed, whether they'll be physically healthy, whether uh, they'll be schizophrenic, uh, that kind of stuff. And, and we're not talking about little tiny things. And in, in fact, Judith Harris says that there are ways that parents directly influence their kids, but it, it's in much smaller ways, not in these, these big, uh, ways. Am I on the right path here, Naomi? Yes, I think that's what she she argues. Um, and it's, I mean, it's the big five. It's assess, It's tests. It's assessment tests mostly, mm-hmm. and also um, cognitive cognitive measures. So IQ tests mm, or some similar right. things, like that, and level of educational achievement. So it's quite a reductionist way of looking at who people turn who, how people turn out. Yeah. It would be my first point. Um, because I think as a clinical psychologist, the experiences are what form our life. They're, they're what make us who we are in terms of our thoughts, our memories, our way we relate to the world. But I would completely agree that perhaps they don't necessarily change our ratings on a set of personality measures very well. But I'm quite skeptical in a way about what those personality measures actually tell us to be open mm, about mm-hmm. it. And particularly about IQ tests. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm quite skeptical of what those tell us. But also I think there is, and there has been a problem, there is a problem with a lot of this research, which is that the group that they have worked within are quite limited, typically, in terms of culture and also perhaps in terms of socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. Because there's a tendency for people who participate in research studies to be a certain kind of person, um, and particularly people who stay in long-term research studies. You know, to be in a twin study, you have to be in that twin study for 20 years, really. You have to be a kind of family that's quite stable. 
you have to be the kind of family that will remember to send your address to somebody if the, you know if you move house because following up people who have quite chaotic lifestyles who are quite erratic is much much harder hmm. you, know, you have to really chase those people if you want to keep them because otherwise they will vanish they'll move house and everybody will say no they're left no for yeah address. yeah they'll stop responding to, to the questionnaires exactly yeah. yes and i think when you start to think of a wider on a wider level it's quite clear that things like culture, for example, which is a shared environment, makes massive differences, but it wouldn't make di- a difference within a group of people all from the same culture. Mm-hmm. Do you see? So, you know, you've got a group of twins from the UK. Well, you're going to be looking at what it's like to be immersed in UK culture. Uh, but yeah. that is a shared environment which doesn't even come up in your study because yeah. it won't cause differences. So, And also I think there's something here which I think is really important is that we're talking about heritability, Yeah. Heritability is really misunderstood because heritability is about variance. It's about what makes people different from each other. Okay. So it's not about one individual person. It's about if I've got a whole group of people, what is it that's going to make these people the same or different to each other? So, for example, um, if you have a group of people and they all so height is heritable yeah we all think height is pretty heritable you you have tall parents quite likely you might be tall um and if you have a group of kids and they all have an adequate diet then height will be probably pretty well 100 percent heritable they're barring you know a child having an illness in childhood or something which means that they they end up a different height but generally they all have a good enough food height will be 100 percent heritable if you then for example um if those children then suddenly live in a famine and actually none of them have enough to eat, or in fact, half of them have enough to eat because they're the richer kids and half of them don't have enough to eat because they're the poorer kids, your heritability will go down. Mm. Okay. Because now suddenly the environment is what's causing differences in the heights of these children. So heritability isn't something that is fixed for any trait. It's about a particular population at a particular time mm-hmm. when you do your study. And if you look like there's a classic studies where they looked at height of people in the Netherlands and apparently just after World War II, I think it was World War II, um, the average height of a Dutch person was significantly shorter than the average height of someone in the USA because their diet had been really poor over the previous six years of war. Now there is no difference. So the the whole over the whole population, things like height, which you might say that's 100% heritably, can be enormously affected by the environment. Do you see what I mean? So I think mm-hmm. often as a lay person, you might think, oh, hang on. So something, so that's genetic. Okay. That means the environment doesn't matter. It doesn't. It just means that the environment is not necessarily causing differences between people. Mm-hmm. So yes, it, it, it's all about context and it, you have to differentiate between group level studies and individual uh, level you know, studies. And something that, something, something that everybody shares won't make a difference. So if everybody yeah. in your study is having good enough parenting, then parenting won't come out to make a difference. And in fact, lots of the studies, Judith Rich Harris and Plomin both specifically say we don't include children who are traumatized or abused. Yes. So they rule out those families and say, in those cases, clearly it does make a difference. Yeah, that's a super important point because the way that Judith Rich Harris's arguments were popularized in the media when the Mm. book came out was essentially as parents don't matter. And that's, that's such an easy, you know, thesis to disprove if you consider trauma (laughs) and abuse, it's like, of course, 
my parents, you know, mattered if they they hit me or they emotionally abused me or they didn't feed me. Uh, you know, anyone who's read Educated by Tara Westover, it's like, yeah, parents matter. Yeah. But um, but yeah, you're right. In the research that we're largely d- discussing today, it's within the context of kind of the normal range of like basically response responsible and respectful parenting. Yeah. yeah. And it's like having enough food to eat. Then you'll find that variations will be due to different to genetics, perhaps, because you haven't got those massive differences in parenting. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, I wonder what would happen if you did a real cross-cultural study. I would be really interested in a study that say looked at parenting practices in China or parenting practices in South Africa mm-hmm. and looked at what differences that resulted in between children because I would having just lived in France and then moved back to the UK parenting culture is quite different in France and I would hypothesize that you would be able to see ways in which parenting culture in France affects children differently to parenting Mm -hmm. culture in the UK yeah so the the idea that we could just switch around all the the parents and children um, really that that only holds true perhaps within within a specific cultural context like within the UK um, yeah, and, even and a the, social group there too, yeah? Socially that's, that's right, a certain group. social class perhaps, because yeah. even the UK and France, those are both weird cultures. That That's the yeah. acronym for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, weird. Yeah. And, and so, but even there, you're saying oh, there can be major yeah. cultural differences. I think so, really big differences yeah. that I saw and really big differences in how the children behave because of that. And I mean, people write books about it, don't they? There's like why French children don't throw food or why well, there are Americans who go and write about it. So Americans notice it too when they go to France. It's like, mm-hmm. wow, parenting is quite different here. Okay. Um, so the <laughs> what we're trying to say here is <laughs> a lot of this research is nuanced uh, it's not as simple as it seems. Uh, That's there's right. a lot of context. <laughs> and so take it with a big grain of salt. But at the yep. same time, l- let's let's continue taking the research because it's yep. real and it's been replicated and it's it's pretty robust. Um, mm-hmm. I want I wanted to return to kind of the arc of Judith Riches Harris's arguments in the nurture yep. assumption. So she said that um, actually there's a, a quote I'd like to to read from her book. Um, she said that a lot of the stuff that we assume that parents are causing in mm-hmm. their kids is um, could easily be the kids causing in their parents. And so mm-hmm. um, here's a, a yes. wonderful quote that frames this issue. Um, she wrote, how can I question something for which there's so much evidence? You can see it with your own eyes. Parents do have effects on their kids. The child who's been beaten looks cowed in, pres- in the presence of her parents. The child whose parents have been wimpy runs rampant over them. The child whose parents fail to teach morality behaves immorally. The child whose parents don't think he will accomplish much doesn't accomplish much. And then she goes on to provide all these further examples. Uh, Parents who treat their children harshly tend to have children who are aggressive or anxious or both. Parents who behave in an honest, kind, and conscientious manner with their children are likely to have children who also behave in an honest, kind, and conscientious manner. This is what she calls the nurture assumption. We just assume that parental nurture is the main driver. Uh, But then just to read one more quote from her, uh, she said, well, as most parents realize shortly after the birth of their second child, children come into this world already different from each other. Their parents treat them differently because of their different characteristics. A fearful child is reassured. A bold one is cautioned. A smiley baby is kissed and played with. An unresponsive one is fed, diapered, and put in its crib. And so this is, uh, you know, she said there are parent to child effects, which is what we all like to assume parents are influencing their children, but there can also be child to parent 
effects. Um, for example, you know, children who are hugged are more likely to be nice. Children who are spanked are more likely to be unpleasant. Turn that statement around and you get one that's equally plausible. Nice children are more likely to be hugged. Unpleasant children are more likely to be spanked. Now, is this just an elaborate form of victim blaming here, Naomi? Well, I sort of wish wish she hadn't used the spanking. I know, I know. And she was writing in the 90s. And and (laughs) so that was, that practice was still a little bit accepted. Yeah. And also the sort of labeling of children as unpleasant and nice, Mm -hmm. I think doesn't really sit well with me. But yes, she's talking about bidirectionality. And I think that is a really important factor in parenting, which most of us completely ignore. And as she says, she's absolutely right. Shortly after the birth of your second child, you realize, oh, golly, it wasn't me. Because all the things that you thought you'd learnt with the first one and all the things you thought you were taking response, you know, all the things you were giving yourself credit for with the first one, for example, you realize that the second one doesn't, it doesn't work with them. And I think, I think this is a really important idea for parents to take on that, responsive parenting involves responding to the child you have there and children are not blank slates. And I think in a way for me, that's the most important part of Judith Rich Harris's book and all these books about genes and environment. Children come with their own preferences, their own ideas, they form them. They are personalities right from day one. They are not buckets to be filled up with knowledge or with parenting. They are active agents in their world from day one. And I think one of the most exciting ideas I found about environment and non-shared environment particularly is that environment is actually, there's a, is heritable. So environment is genetically determined in some way is genetically influenced in some way and that when people hear that for the first time they go what that doesn't make sense that's a mind bender it's a real mind bender but what it means is that we all create the environment around ourselves and that's what judith rich harris is talking about here we have you know a baby comes into the world temperamentally placid without any major health problems sleeps really well they are creating relatively relaxed parents for themselves probably even if their parents were anxious in the start the parents think oh we're getting it right few you know their parents will get lots of validation from the world around them because everybody will say oh your baby's sleeping through the night how great and the likelihood is that that child the way the child is right there not not on purpose she that child is actively creating the kind of parents that they get um, and they do, and the the research shows that that isn't just about parents; that's about everything. So you know, the way a child goes and is at school will influence the friends they make, will influence the te- how the teachers are to them. It will influence what opportunities they get at school. And at one level, we all know that because we know that we all make choices, which means that two children could be in the same family, and actually, the environment they've made for themselves could be completely different. So one, in fact, just thinking about my own two children who are very different. One of my children spends most of his time coding on the computer or playing Minecraft. The other child spends all of her time making things out of polymer clay and drawing. They have the same shared, their shared environment is our house, my, our parenting. And yet within that, they have made choices, which means they're spending their time in very, very different ways. And that will affect how they turn out because they, those choices affect what they do with their day and what they learn. So I think that's actually a really radical and really important idea mm, to take mm-hmm. on. But and, um, one of the ways, I don't know if I can make the connection to self-directed education mm-hmm, here, please. but I think one of the things that self-directed education does is it provides a very flexible environment within which children can make choices and can actually form their own environment. So I think 
sometimes people say, oh, you know, well, children will be, children won't have the difficulties that they have if they're self-directed rather than being in school. And what they mean is that the, the, the hyperactive child will no longer be hyperactive child, will no longer be hyperactive. The child who has trouble with socialising will no longer have troubles with socialising. That isn't really my experience, but what I think it does, self-directed education does is it gives children the opportunities to discover the places that they thrive in Mm -hmm. and the opportunity to discover the things that make them feel really good about themselves Mm -hmm. and really learn what they do you know really learn through coming to know themselves whereas a school environment is quite rigid by comparison there's nothing like the same amount of scope in a school environment to really spend your time doing what makes you very happy and what where you learn most Mm -hmm. the school environment is if you compare it to almost anything, actually, it's quite inflexible. You have to be with that class with other kids of your age. You have to do what has been set down by somebody else. Whereas parents at, the be- in the, at their best are quite flexible. And that's why we get bi-directionality with parents, because mm. parents respond to the child. And, and just to continue on this mm. tangent for a moment, I, I think you just made a, a wonderful case for self-directed learning. And, and how I interpreted that specifically was kids get the chance to choose how they're going to be challenged yeah. instead of just acquiescing to the, the challenges that come with the school environment, which some, a minority of kids do thrive in and they receive the benefits of, of those mm-hmm. victories, but the majority of kids simply don't. Mm-hmm. And, and so we could look at this from the perspective of, of flow, flow states. Um, you know, what can a kid do? Maybe a kid really loves playing chess. And when you let them play chess for six hours a day for six months, you know, they are rapidly developing their skills. They're getting these sort of psychological benefits of, of seeing their skills increase, uh, feeling a sense of autonomy, uh, greater control over their environment. Um, and, and that same kid could potentially be miserable and labeled a failure or labeled learning disabled in a regular school environment. Mm, yeah. Oh, there's not okay. there's not the same potential in the school environment for a child to be the active agent. And I think that's my take home message mm. from all of this genetic environment research. And that's why I actually think the research supports self-directed education, because what we learn from the research about the gene and genes and environment is that people are active agents in creating their experiences right from the day one. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the more we can help them do that and enable them to do that, the more they will learn to manage that capacity to, for being an active agent. Yes. Because actually what we do is they get into school and we say, sorry, the choice time is over. You're in fact, you know, in the UK schools, I don't know what it's like in the US, but you don't really get many choices about what you do in school until you're about 14. Yeah. Up to then, it's pretty well you have to do what you're going to do. So we take that acted that agency away from them, which restricts their ability to be the person they're going to be, to really express their genes. <laughs> it's a funny way of putting it, but to yeah. really experience the world with their own individual characteristics and yeah. temperament. And maybe that's how we'll talk about education come 50 years. It's like we, we need to maximize every child's opportunity to express their genes or something like that. <laughs> we might do, because when you put things in scientific words like that, I think if I, people often accept it in a way that they don't otherwise. Yeah. You know, it's one of these things that when you talk about self-directed education, people are like, oh, but well, aren't they just going to play all day? Um, but when you talk about it as be the chance to express your individual autonomy and to therefore maximize your genetic potential and to learn in the way that is best suited to you, then it all starts to sound a bit yeah. more. Um, 
formal. You just made me think of something that I feel like the default way that we discuss like the, the theoretical problems of giving a kid autonomy and agency, mm-hmm. is, it's almost rooted in Puritanism, just like this like Protestant work ethic. Like, well, mm-hmm. if we don't force the kid to learn, they'll never, they'll learn, never, to, do it. never learn to work hard on crappy stuff yep. that they don't like. Yep. And what the genetic research is showing us is that actually you can't, that doesn't work like that. You can't force people because, you know, it doesn't make a difference in the long term. It's not going to, that we, yeah, I think that's yeah. a really important point. Oh man. I, I feel like this could turn into a four hour conversation easily, but I know that you have two kids who will need <laughs> your time soon enough. So let's get back to uh, the, I just want to kind of close out the Judith Rich Harris argument and actually get to the part where maybe you'll have a lot of pushback against mm-hmm. her ideas, which is kind of the second half of her argument. The first half mm-hmm. is genes matter a lot. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff we consider active parenting is actually the reflection of the genes that parents pass yeah. on to their kids. Oh yeah. And can I just add to that? Because oh, I didn't please. say that as well. There's also, of course, there's active gene environment interaction, which is when kids create a response in others and in their environment but there's also passive gene environment interaction which you get with parenting because parents and children share the same genes Mm -hmm. so if some you know if a child has particular characteristics it's likely that the parents will share some of those characteristics too so Mm -hmm. that's another reason why we might over assume that nurture is is causing something when actually it's shared genes yeah yeah my my dad was an entrepreneur he he started Mm -hmm. a food processing food processing business. Yeah. I have wanted to be an entrepreneur ever since I was a teenager. I started a travel company. <laughs> yeah. Was that direct environmental parental nurture exactly. or, or do we just share the How same broad know? personality traits that lead to yeah. An entrepreneurialism? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How would we know? Um, okay. So the second half of Judith Rich Harris's argument in the nurture assumption is that uh, when we're talking about the influence of the environment, it's really about peer groups. And she mm-hmm. makes um, a set of arguments, some of them based in language and culture acquisition, um, others based in the research around human groupishness. Mm-hmm. Um, and she essentially said, um, kids, you know, how do you explain, for example, uh, first generation immigrant children learning, uh, becoming highly proficient in the language and culture of their new land uh, when their parents have none of this? Um, and she says it has to come from one place, like the peer groups and, and the broader culture also. But she says it's probably the peer groups because um, humans are are very tribal. They're very groupish by nature. And the very first group distinction that we make, uh, all of us, is kids versus adults. And there's actually this wonderful Peter Gray quote in um, a 1998 article in The New Yorker written by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, Peter Gray was essentially saying, yeah, uh, Judith Rich Harris's arguments about this are pretty sound. And and here's the quote from Gray. He says, whom do they want to please? Are they wearing the kind of clothing that other kids are wearing or the kind that their parents are wearing? If the other kids are speaking in another way, whose language are they going to learn? And from an evolutionary perspective, whom should they be paying attention to? Their parents, the members of the previous generation, or their peers who will be their future mates and future collaborators? It would be more adaptive, and he means adaptive in an evolutionary sense, for them to be better attuned to the nuances of their peers' behavior. That just makes a lot of sense. Does this make sense to you, Naomi? Well, it's funny because I think actually, I think it's a slightly schooled perspective from both Mm -hmm. of them, actually, because they they are coming from a context where children go off into a group of lots of other children from quite an early age. I know that Peter Gray's um, son went to Sudbury school. So, and I'm pretty sure Judith Harris is, is not thinking about home educated children. Um, 
because this sort of kids versus adults distinction in my from my observations doesn't happen in the same way with home educated children they don't because they're not pushed away from the family and i find that children home educated children are much much less concerned about the judgment of their peers than are um school children and i think partly that's because they know that 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 peer group is actually optional for them so whereas if you put school children with a group of peers they have no choice about staying with that group of peers they've got to fit in and i think i'm peter gray's right it's a matter of survival because we all know what it's like not to fit in at school well maybe we don't but i know it's not fun at all you want to fit in and if you it means you have to squash yourself in order to fit in you'll probably do that because the other option is hostility and bullying home educated children don't go through that process and it's interesting that um Judith Rich Harris uses language because I think I've taken this up with you before that I think language is a not a great example to use because exposure to language for a certain amount of hours a day will result in someone learning that language. So if you put a child in school or nursery for 8 hours a day in French for example, I did do that I mean this is what my children did at the Sudbury school they learned French, they will learn French. Um but I know of home educating parents who've moved to a different country and their children have not learnt the language of the dominant culture their children have remained english speakers in a french country mm-hmm. or english speakers in portugal so it's clear that it's not just it's it's more complicated than that it's what environment we're putting children into and what the requirements of that environment are mm-hmm. and i think it's true that i think at school there is a massive pressure to conform with your peers enormous but i don't necessarily think that that is evolutionary driven and i because i think there will have been all kinds of different cultures through human history and some groups will have been very small and there will have only been a few families it wouldn't have always been that there would have been a group of kids to join in and within that way and i think one of the distinctions i see between my children and school children as they grow is that my children are far less focused on fitting in with their peers they like their peers they like having time with their peers but they are less focused on how important it is for them to fit in or be mm. the same mm. and it's because they know that they can always say i've had i don't want to do this anymore i've had enough and school children don't have that mm. this is very interesting and your perspective is invaluable here since i've just been reading books and you have actual children who have experienced <laughs> a multitude of of environmental uh, situations yes um so good um it sounds like you're saying the Judith Rich Harris argument about peers being super important may be true in the context of of a traditional school environment yes, yes um, i think but, so but not yeah you're saying context matters i don't think matters. it's inevitable yes exactly yeah. i don't think it's inevitable and i think there are lots of reasons why schools make peers so important mm-hmm. um partly because there's a lot of bullying that goes on if you don't fit in with your peers that's a really clear way of doing it right there So I mean it's not like it's a free choice I suppose is what I'd be saying on the part of those children. Yeah. I I feel like there's one little caveat here I wanted mm-hmm. to throw in which is that recently you know youth culture has been been globalized. Mm-hmm. Uh it that's YouTube, that's Tumblr, that's uh Instagram. Uh and so I think maybe that example you gave of like an earlier mm-hmm. culture where there's just a few families living together maybe the, the effects of um of peer uh, peer peer pressure were less important 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, I'm just theorizing here that even homeschooled kids nowadays, um, because they generally have access to the, this broader um, youth culture via the internet may still harbor like the us versus them, you know, kids versus adults uh, notions. And they're not getting it from a school group, but they are getting it from media. From a peer group media. Yeah. yeah. yeah I think that's true. And there, I mean, I, I'm not saying there isn't a pull to be with mm-hmm. your age group or your peer group. I think there is. Um, but I think, I mean, online peer groups can also be extremely uh, negative. They can be, there's a lot mm-hmm. of online bullying that goes on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the young people I work with have experienced horrible abuse online. And there's a lot of, I think your know, online is very interesting actually, because there's a lot of pressure to conform online. There are, it's very difficult to express an opinion which is outside the mainstream or out no, the mainstream of whatever context you're in. Do you see what I mean? Um, I mean, there's yeah. lots of people writing about being shamed online. So there's a lot of, so I suppose what I'm thinking all the time is how much is this an external pressure to be a certain way? And how much is this something that people themselves, individuals, seek out? And that's an interesting point. I haven't thought that much about it, but I suppose I think, um, I think there's there can be a very punitive peer yeah. culture. Um, and, and if we're on. talking about bullying and, and shaming on, mm. on a schoolyard, you yeah. Know, when I was in school in the eighties and nineties, you know, if you got bullied or shamed, that would essentially end once you you left school. Yeah. But but here, you say the wrong thing online, you can yep. get you know it will be immortalized first of all. It'll be screen yep. captured, and then you'll be bullied and shamed twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Yes. Um, and even so, more scary than that, people are now going back to things that people said maybe 20 years ago online. I know. And people know. are being made to give up their jobs because they said something 20 years ago. So that's a, a huge amount of fear there, isn't there? A huge amount of worry about having to present yourself in a certain way. Hmm. You've got to be right. And not only have you got to be right now, but you've got to be right by the what will be the social norms in 20 years' time in case your employer looks back and says, what, you said that then? <laughs> I mean, it's. I think it's quite scary. It's quite a scary group to to grow up in. But I think it it pressures. It puts it. The pressure is towards conformity in that context. So um, I think we agree that conformity and, and peer pressure is a mm. significant thing. Kind of no matter how you slice up this cake. Yeah. Um, so I want to get onto what Judith Rich Harris said was the practical thing that parents can do, both mm-hmm. in terms of of interventions and actions within family life, and then also how to think about the parent-child relationship. And as I understand it, she said two things. Uh, First of all, you can have some influence on your kids um, indirectly by shaping the peer groups that they are around. And, you know, in one way, this is totally non-controversial advice because any parent who thinks about like, which school should I send my kid to, or even which homeschooling community should we join, um, is thinking, what kind of other kids do I want my kid to be around? Uh, mm-hmm. And everyone intuitively understands that peers do shape, um, you know, your, your own kid. And so, uh, in you know my what? Bo- Can I just say yeah, also, Blake? There, I think there's something about shaping your experience, which to me is is more important than perhaps the kind of shaping that Judith Rich Harris and Plowman are maybe talking about, where it is about who do they become? Because I think to me and to self-directed educators generally, that the the environment a child's in hugely affects their experience right now what they're doing and feeling right now. And I think I 
feel that that's something which maybe gets lost a bit in this mm. kind of research. So, yeah, anyway. so, so you're saying, yes, like long-term shaping of, of measurable yeah. personality traits may be interesting and important, but also just like, is a kid having a good time today? Yeah, Are they I mean, feeling valued? The- Are they feeling engaged? Exactly. It's long, I mean, long-term shaping of personality traits, that sounds like a parenting culture comment, really, doesn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, even the fact that one would be thinking about how am I going to shape my child's long-term personality traits, to me, feels mm-hmm. slightly m- creepily m- controlling. M- micromanaging. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It isn't really how I choose my children's peers. I don't think, hmm, are they going to help them shape the long-term personality traits? So, yeah, I don't really think like that. It's more about <laughs> who do they enjoy spending time with, who can we see with minimal conflict <laughs> or who can we, you know, who, who helps us all feel happier when we see them? Yeah. And this uh, makes me want to bring up another researcher who I cited in the book, Anne-Marie Ambert, who's a sociologist and did this study asking her students to write about the most upsetting events in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and only 9% of these students, I, I believe these are college age students, identified something that their parents did, which was upsetting. And while more than a third of them cited the actions of their peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, yeah, Miss Ambert wrote, uh, there is far more negative treatment by peers than by parents. In these autobiographies, one reads accounts of students who have been happy and well-adjusted, but quite rapidly began deteriorating psychologically, sometimes to the point of becoming physically ill and incompetent in school, after experiences such as being rejected by peers, excluded, talked about, racially discriminated against, laughed at, bullied, sexually harassed, taunted, chased, or beaten. All, I witnessed all of these things happening in my public middle school mm-hmm. in California. And... and, and I wonder, I think it influences both a kid's day-to-day experience and their long-term kind of, it shapes them in a long-term way that may be very significant. Uh, I totally buy this argument that there's way more damage that can be done by peers than by parents. Um, Again, taking the extremes, the extreme cases of like total neglect and abuse out of the equation. Except that I think the parents have the power to intervene and to stop something like that happening by taking the child out of school. In fact, yeah. well, that's what so, Judith Rich Harris advised, right? Shape yeah. your kids' peer groups. So, yes, but so I suppose there's a, but there's an overriding parental thing here, isn't there? So you're saying individual actions of peers might be very destructive to lots of children, and I would totally believe that. But there's there's overriding that is the parent who wasn't able to respond, who wasn't able to hear, or who didn't take it seriously. Do you see what I mean? So it's like peer, peer group, peer group, as you have just said, peer group interactions don't happen in a vacuum. You don't, you're at the school you're at because your parents have chosen it pretty well always. They've had to choose it at some level um, and they've had to choose that you go to school. So there's a level of parental influence which pervades a lot of children's experiences. Do you, do you see what yes. I'm getting at? Yes, um, so whereas those peers, for example, they do not have the power to take the child out of the parental home. So they don't have the same power over the children as the parents have in terms of influencing their overall experience. Yeah, I'm sorry, you just said so, the peers don't have that power? Yeah, so, so what I mean is the peers can bully and be really evil yes. to another child in a school context, yeah? Um, but the parents then can do something, usually do something about that, even if it's a radical thing like let's take the children out of school. Mm-hmm. The 
peers do not have that sort of power over the child and parent relationship. So the, the yes. power dynamics are, are unbalanced. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Not just about individual traumatic events. It's about who has the power to make decisions about this child's life. Yeah. I, I, I feel like we're on the same page here. Like mm. this, this is what the real power that parents have to really mm-hmm. shape their kid's life is to help get them into the right kind of environment and help, mm. help them escape the wrong kind of environment. Um, and, yes. and that's what and good we... parenting may be in a very large broad sense. Yes. Cause I'm also thinking about socioeconomic status here because um, I've, I've always thought that it's a kind of, I know it, it's fairly clear if you look around you, how much the socioeconomic status of your family affects what happens to you as you mm-hmm. grow up. I don't know what it's mm-hmm. like in the US, but in no, the UK, completely true. if you're born to a middle class family, you are your chances of ending up middle class are pretty high. If you're born to a very deprived family, your chances of ending up middle class are lower. And that is parenting as well. So it's about also about definitions of what we see. And it's not parenting, it's parental influence. It's the parents' careers. It might not be things that the parents have chosen. It might not be things they would want for themselves or for their children, but it is their characteristics that are forming that child's experience, where they live, where they can go to school, the people they're exposed to, the how everybody talks to each other in the house. All of those things affect the child's outcome, and we know that. It's, it's hard to argue that we don't know that. Do you see what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't really quite know how Judith Rich-Harris copes with that. In fact, do you know? No, I don't. Uh, but I know she acknowledges it in the book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wonder again if it's a short, if it's a problem with the research studies that it's quite a limited socioeconomic group who we actually see in those yeah, research studies. I believe that. Yeah. Okay. So finally, um, Judith Rich Harris said you can influence your kids' peer groups. And then she said, and I feel like this is the real kind of warm hearted, fuzzy takeaway mm-hmm. from the nurture assumption. She said, you can just focus on the one on one relationship you Mm -hmm. have with your kid. And she paints this wonderful analogy to marriage. She -hmm. says, you can learn, this is a quote, you can learn things from the person you're married to. Marriage can change your opinions and influence your choice of career or religion, but it doesn't change your personality except in temporary context dependent ways. And, Mm -hmm. And then she goes on to say, people sometimes ask me, so you mean it doesn't matter how I treat my child? They never ask, so you mean it doesn't matter how I treat my husband? Or so you mean it doesn't matter how I treat my wife? And yet the situation is similar. I don't expect that the way I act towards my husband today is going to determine what kind of person he will be tomorrow. I do expect, however, that it will affect how happy he is to live with me and whether we will remain good friends. I love that quote because it's essentially it's essentially saying you can think of your relationship with your kid in the same way you think about your relationship with your siblings or your own parents or your friends or a spouse. Um, and you don't expect that you're going to, you know, somehow drastically shape any of these people's lives, but um, yeah, you can, you know, rub, things can rub off between friends or between spouses. Um, so Judith Rich Harris in the book says there are ways that parents directly influence kids in terms of religious beliefs, political beliefs, uh, musical talents, you know, uh, cooking abilities, uh, and career plans. And this is stuff that, you know, I, I think if you had like a friend living in your house for many years and you shared meals with this friend most nights and you had conversations with them, that friend's, you know, 
whatever political beliefs or musical talents might rub off on you in the same way that your ideas about your career uh, or your religion might rub off on them. That's just normal, like human influence uh, with, when you spend a lot of time around someone else. And so the, the way I interpreted her message is, is listen, just be like a normal mm -hmm. uh, human uh, and be nice and be respectful. Um, it, the, the big difference is that kids are relatively powerless relative to their parents. They're, they're in a subordinate position. And so there, there's so much more opportunity for abuse of power um, in the way that you don't have that between two adults. This is what, what makes the parent-child relationship, um, it, while it may be no different from you know, a, a friendship, uh, this is what can lead parents to do things that their kids later really resent. And, and those kids don't want to be around their parents or have a relationship with their parents anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I also really like that quote. I think that fundamentally what she's saying there is you can't make your child different to who they are. And it's the more you can accept your child and join with them in their life and have a kind of relationship where the two of you are equally fully human beings, the happier your relationship with them will be. And so often we talk about children as if they aren't fully formed human beings. We talk about them as sort of people in waiting or people who need to learn this and need to do this and need to do this. And we have to control them or they won't do these things. And I think that's what she's arguing there, that only when we really see them as they are, can we really relate to them as full human beings. But I also think only when we see them as they are, can we actually use our power effectively to make choices for them that will help them to thrive. Because so many choices people make for their children are based on what they feel their children should be rather than what they actually should be, what they actually are. Um, and I think this is something that's really important, particularly for children who get diagnosed with special educational needs, that there's something really important about starting with who that child is right now and not some fantasy other child that you thought you'd have and trying to form them, trying to shape them into this other child because all we can really be is who we are. I feel like there is a lot of overlap here with uh, romantic relationships, for example. <laughs> if you're trying to shape your partner into who you believe your, your ideal partner is mm. in your head, that's that yeah. is a path towards failure. It's controlling. Right there. Yeah. 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 And no adults um, like to be controlled, yet you know, oh. we do this to children so often. We believe we have to do it to children. Hmm. Or many people believe we have to do it to children because the other opposite, the other alternative would be terrible. Yeah. And that's where the intensive parenting culture kind of ties back in. It, it mm -hmm. gives us like cultural cover for being controlling and micromanaging. Yes. Um, we, because we it's, have to it's, do it. it's your obligation. That's yeah. how you are responsible as a parent. Yeah. It's love. In fact, that's oh how we show the love for parents. Yeah. I hear your kids uh, romping around in the backyard, in the background there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're doing their stuff. <laughs> they're, the locals they're are following getting restless. Their, they're following their self-directed learning yeah. Pokemon at the moment, which is <laughs> our current passion. <laughs> um, okay, so in the end, the Judith Rich Harris message is like you can relax quite a bit. You can focus on just enjoying the person uh, who you're with. You don't mm -hmm. have to worry if they don't turn out the way you think they're supposed to turn out because a lot of this is actually out of your hands. Mm -hmm. you, you can make these little 
interventions. You can get your kid out of a bad school situation or out of a bad peer group situation or maybe away from online bullies. Um, that can be a really good thing. But to, to imagine you have more fine-grained control over their destinies, how they turn out, um, is, is to worry yourself sick <laughs> for no good reason. Mm-hmm. And I think Alison Gopnik has a similar thing to say, doesn't she, really? Yeah. We're looking. We're we're looking to be gardeners, helping children, cultivating a garden within which children can grow, rather than soaring them into the right shape. Mm-hmm. All right. The last two things I want to talk about, mm-hmm. Naomi, are uh, Robert Plowman and mm-hmm. then attachment parenting. Okay. Again. So uh, I'll let you choose which one to start with. Ooh, both both interesting i wonder <laughs> um i don't really mind actually whichever you all right let's, let's talk about plowman um he has okay. this great line parents matter but they don't make a difference which yeah. on the face of it sounds a lot like judith rich harris and the nurture mm-hmm. assumption but he has a different take on on how kids turn out the way they do mm-hmm. yes so he also is interpreting the research about the non-shared and shared environment and he is a Uh, you know, he's a world-renowned expert on behavioral genetics. He has run huge twin studies, adoption studies. Um, He's a, you know, he's ground, his research is groundbreaking. Um, And his argument, again, is that we find consistently that shared environment does not make a difference. So his, he says parents matter, but they don't make a difference. And he says that the environment matters in random ways. It's random events that make the differences between people. So again, he's saying to parents, relax, you can't influence what happens to the the outcomes because the environmental things that happen to this person will be essentially random. Um, And that's quite controversial in the, Mm. in the fields of not just the field of behavioral genetics, but it's also, it starts to get quite complicated and technical. I don't know how much we want to go into that, but um, a lot of it also rests on this idea. My, in my opinion, a lot of this, a lot of this debate rests on this idea of non-shared environment, shared environment as an actual physical thing in the environment. You know, environment we share is us in a family. Environment we don't share is things we do differently. I don't actually buy that distinction. I don't mm. think that is the real distinction. I think what the reality is is that there is almost nothing which is an objectively shared environment because there is almost nothing which has the same effect on all the people who experience it. Mm-hmm. I mean, COVID-19 is a great example. It's a massive global event and in, we're having, all of us are having restrictions put upon our lives. We're all having to cope with this anxiety. We're all worried about it. And the rhetoric, I don't know what it's like where you are, but a lot of the rhetoric with us is about, we're all in this together. We can all do this together. But the effect on people is enormously different, just enormously different. No one is experiencing this pandemic in the same way. One person might lose their job. They get kicked out of their house because they can't pay the rent. They're, they're destitute because of it. Another person is able to carry on working from home. They've got their kids at home, which is a bit stressful, but, you know, they can manage that. And their life carries on pretty well as normal. Some people, it's like life-changing on a level of them changing career to go and do something that is helping people with COVID. Some people have found that they've got together with their neighbours in a way they never did before. And now suddenly they feel this great sense of community with the people around them because they're all doing each other's shopping and that kind of thing. 
environmental events have a different effect on different people depending on that person's circumstances and on their genes, their temperament, all sorts of aspects. So there's always an interaction between the environment and the person. And that's why I actually think the non-shared shared environment distinction sort of directs our attention in the wrong in mm-hmm. the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, um, it's it's oversimplified. It it, it makes it it's, easily it, digestible for yeah. the public, but it, there's so much nuance and context which is lost. Well, also, it makes us think of environment as something that's separate from genes, and actually, it never is. Yeah. So that's what I mean. There's always everything is always an interaction because you've always got that person there with their own characteristics, their own history. You've your everything is filtered through the the, the, the person. Yeah. There is no such thing as objective environment, really, yeah. when it comes to the effects on a person. So that's why I think that we don't get any effects of shared environment, because almost nothing has the same effect on all people. Yes, yes. The world, there's no clear boundary at, you know, which follows the edge of your house. No. Uh, you know, Every, between also, shared and non-shared environment. Even Also, everything even that goes on in your house, you know, even when you have, actually, even when you have abusive parents, it will often be experienced in very different ways by different children in that family. So one parenting, a particular kind of parenting might fit really well with one child and not very well at all with another child. And it's the same parent doing the same thing. And you, you brought up this with school yourself, actually, that school has a very different effect on different people. Some people go to school and it fits, fits with them. They enjoy it. They, it was, it's the kind of thing they would have chosen to do even if they had complete free choice over their time and they thrive there. Some people go to school and it's like an alien environment and it's the same school. <laughs> you right. know. So environment is always filtered through us. I think that's really important. That's such a good point. Thank you. Um, okay, so to wrap this up, let's talk mm-hmm. once more about attachment parenting because Mm -hmm. when you were giving me comments on my book manuscript you made this brilliant point uh about well let me just kind of quote Mm -hmm. you this is this is in the footnotes of the book um or the end notes uh middle class unschooling parents may display the characteristic traits of intensive parents to the extent that their unschooling is a form of concerted cultivation you're borrowing that definition of intensive parenting um, mm-hmm. Instead of the more detached parenting style, which I characterize in this book, you're, you're pointing out my biases in the book towards yeah. a, a fairly hands-off parenting style. Um, yeah. And to the extent that these unschooling parents embrace attachment parenting, which itself is a form of intensive parenting. And, and yeah. I am, I'm actually a bit afraid to like even broach this topic because <laughs> I, there's so many like unschooling families who, who are members yeah. of my audience. And to say that attachment parenting, which is this kind of cherished ideal, as far as I mm-hmm. understand it, um, in the unschooling world is in itself a form of attachment parenting, which I've characterized, Inten- uh, excuse parenting. me, thank you, mm-hmm. as of intensive parenting, which I've characterized as, as hyper-controlling and perhaps <laughs> unnecessary. Uh, oh, I'm getting myself in hot water here. So, so rescue yeah. me, Naomi. Well, the first thing to say is this is based on my experience. So the reason okay. I think about this a lot is because I was an attachment parent. I'm an unschooling parent. I did these things. So I'm I'm not just I'm not actually basing it on seeing anybody else's, and also on the reading because actually uh, I think Sharon Hayes, but certainly other people who write about intensive mothering do write about attachment parenting as a form of intensive mothering because mothering in particular I've used there because it is often mothers who do the attachment parenting in the first few years. I mean, it's it's undoubtedly the case that attachment parenting is an extraordinarily intensive thing to do. It is absolutely not. I mean, 
the easy option. <laughs> it's the easy option in some ways in that you're not trying to train your child to sleep on their own or you're not trying to wean them before they're ready. But oh my goodness, it takes a lot of parental input to keep up attachment parenting. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I think attachment parenting does really come under the intensive parenting group is because there can be an attachment outcome and if you read a lot of the literature I mean the other thing about attachment parenting is there's a lot of stuff written about how to do it and one of the things that I find is difficult about parenting culture the new parenting culture is that it's turned parenting into something that you have to learn how to do you have to read about to do you have to be trained even there are loads of parenting courses you can go on with a certified parenting expert to learn how to be this better kind of parent And I think, unfortunately, what that does is takes away a lot of people's belief in their own ability to make choices, their own ability to look at their child and think, what does this child need? What can I do for them? Because they feel like they should be doing things in a particular way. And I think, unfortunately, attachment parenting does suffer from that. There are a lot of books telling you about how to be an attachment parenting and they, they how to be an attachment parent. And they tend to make predictions about what your child will be like if you do this. Mm. And one of the reasons I became aware of this was that my child did not follow the rules. So, you know, it said the attachment parenting stuff that I read, I was a complete convert. I read it all. I carried my son around for ages, breastfed him for years, um, didn't. We did sort of the unconditional parenting as well, non-punitive, reasonable, um, listening to his feelings, all of it. Um, And it was particularly about independence. What they said, all the attachment parenting literature says, you do all this, you don't push them away from you. And then, you know, the stories are, oh, when they're three, they just run away from you saying, bye, mom. And uh, they're ready to be independent and they've done it in their own time kind of Mm -hmm. thing. My son didn't do that. He clung to me like three, four, age five, age six, still clinging to me. Mm. And I thought, hang on a minute. I sort of took on this, this parenting style, which is very intensive. You know, like we didn't have babysitters. We didn't go out really. Um, he pro- When he protested, we didn't do things. So we didn't leave him with family. Um, and I, it was, there was a sort of trade-off in the books. You know, you do this and your child will be independent and self-confident and then you know you're like ha I got it right (laughs) which is obviously not they don't quite put that in the books but it's a bit like that and I was like but it's not happening it's not happening for us why is it not happening and then I was that's when I started to realize that I had bought into this idea that I was doing all this for a reason you see I was doing it to prove to have a certain outcome of a child like like a carpenter yes exactly that I would have this independent self-confident child if I followed all these steps and I did follow all the steps the child didn't come out the way they were meant to Mm. so that was that was a real moment of awakening for me it's like hang on a minute why did I make all these choices who told me because and there definitely is stuff in the literature which predicts all these kind of things and the stories about how you know you don't need to worry that they're not going to sleep by themselves they'll do it my children honestly I was still lying down to get them to go to sleep when they were seven and eight. And, you know, that was not something I ever consciously decided I was going to be doing. I carried on doing it because it felt like what they needed and because Mm -hmm. it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I don't like the fact that it's, that it's sort of sold as a, you will have this outcome. I feel we should be thinking about what is the right thing to do for this child right now forget what they're going to be like in 10 years time, actually, because if you respond intuitively and responsibly to your child in the present moment, that's what matters. And I think, you know, looking back, there's not much I would have done differently. 
I still think that the way I parented was mm. the right way for my mm -hmm. children to be parented, but I wish I could have let go of that idea that this was all for some later purpose. Mm. Because that sort of sets you and the child up to fail. It sets the child up to be a failure before they're even five because they haven't, you know, does it, and then I know other parents who get very much into this thing of, you know, did we not do it well enough? Did I not carry him around for long enough? Did I not breastfeed for long enough? It's this sort of really unhelpful set of things about, I must have got something wrong. Yeah, the guilt. Because my, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, 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 well, first of all, thank you for sharing your, your personal family journey. I, I think that's extremely illuminating. And is this all just an argument for like reducing our expectations around <laughs> child rearing about not having high expectations? I mean, to say that it's like to break some sacred dogma. Of course, you want to have high expectations, expectations for how your kid turns out. But, but that's what I'm hearing here. Do you think there's, there's, does that carry water? Well, it's interesting because what does we mean by high expectations? Because it's got to be high expectations for something, right? Yeah, that your kid will Is be well-adjusted, that Ooh, they, well -adjusted, they'll be healthy, yeah. they, they will stay out of jail. I don't know, this <laughs> this kind of stuff that, of course, every parent wants. But of course you know, as, we as we've discussed, it. there are these much larger forces at work that uh, can ruin our best laid plans. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a. I think it is an argument for working on accepting the child as who they are right now. This and sounds work, fairly oh Buddhist or, or Stoic <laughs> to me. That, that, that's what my antennae are detecting here. Yeah, maybe it's like what well, who they when I when we first went to a Sudbury school and I um, took my kids along to to, to visit for the first time. Um, we went along, we met the staff and my son was on really, was in a really bad mood. We were in Paris and we were going to get the Eurostar later that day. And he really didn't want to visit a school and then get the Eurostar that afternoon. He was absolutely, he refused to talk to them, refused to do anything. And basically stood by saying, when can we leave? When can we leave? When can we leave? Um, and I apologized to the staff for it and said, I'm really sorry. And I said, he's not always like this. And the reason I said that was that I was worried they were going to say, we won't, you can't come here. Um, because we had had the experience of other groups saying we could, they couldn't, they couldn't have him in the group. Um, and one of the staff said, Ile comile. he is how he is. And that seemed to me a profoundly reassuring statement for the place that I wanted my children to go, to be, to, to go to school, a self-directed school where it's like, he is what he is. You know, and there's something I think really important about he is what he is right now. Doesn't mean anything about what he's going to be tomorrow or the next day mm -hmm. or the next day, but he is how he is. And I think that to me has been the most reassuring mantra in my parenting, <laughs> trying yeah. to focus on right now, they are what they are. Yeah. And I'm dealing with the kid who shows up that's day, right. day by day. That's, that's what they are right now. Exactly. And if you do your best with that each day, then I think you're doing your best for the long term. Um, yeah. that, that's beautiful. That's where we're going to end this. Uh, okay. Naomi, can you remind listeners where they can uh, find out more about you and your work and the name of your book and when it's coming out? Yes. So my book is called Changing Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning. And it's published by Little Brown and it's available for pre-order on amazon.co.uk and amazon.fr. I'm not sure about amazon.com, but if you Google Changing Our Minds and Naomi Fisher, it will come up. 
Um, I also have a Twitter feed, but I don't post it very often, and that's at Naomi Seafisher. Um, and I actually don't really have a website at the moment. I should get one. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I have other articles. If you Google schools out and psychologist, you can read an article I wrote about self-directed education where I interviewed um, Peter Gray, Gina Riley, Kevin Curry-Knight and Harriet Patterson and Alan Thomas all about self-directed education from a psychological perspective. And that's really, that's really where, where to start looking at things I've done. And and I'll include links to both that article and your book in the show notes for this episode. Okay, Um, Naomi, thank you so much for making the time to be on the show. Thank you very much, Blake.